Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute. I'm your host, Will Francis, and today we're looking back on a few classic episodes around the theme of B2B marketing and doing that creatively. We'll hear highlights from three previous guests, Linda Mullen, a B2B marketer in the fintech industry, Dominic Schneider, a marketer at a dental implant manufacturer, and Lee Odden, the CEO of a B2B influencer and content marketing agency. So first, let's hear from Linda, who I asked about the challenge of keeping B2B marketing interesting and engaging. What I come across a lot with B2B marketing is that it clearly a lot of people really struggle to avoid that all too common trap of producing essentially dry corporate and and ultimately boring B2B content in marketing channels, particularly on LinkedIn. How how could I avoid that? What what tips would you have for me to avoid doing that? I think, you know, one of one of the things you want to look at is, you know, what is the core crux of the problem? You know, and no, of course you're not going to be humorous or light about it because, you know, but you can be engaging. You don't have to be humorous, um, but you can be engaging. Um, it's telling people what they're going to learn. What are you going to learn when you read this? You know, um, an interesting, you know, topic for us is within regulatory compliance within the banking industry is um, they have challenger banks nowadays. It's Monzo, it's Revolut. You know, we, we've used that in some of our campaigns because they know that that's, that's, a, that's a competitor. Oh, what's the competitor doing? Or within our industry is fines. Um, you know, we couldn't find a repository where all of the actual regulatory fines were held. So we've developed a whole campaign around fines. Um, our team have just put together the AML Fines Report, which is a global report, which is a one-stop shop that you can actually go to find where there was fines, what bank was fined, what regulatory fine, how much, and really interesting and engaging yeah, so it's it's taking something like that, which is fundamental, but was nowhere to be found. It's not saying like, you know, the regulatory the regulators are fining. Well, of course, we all know that. But, you know, human curiosity wants to know, how much did my neighbor get fined? You know, which country is really doing a poor job in, in regulation? Or, you know, who got fined? Like, and unfortunately, now, you know, people are being responsible for the fines themselves within the industry. Um, so it's changed the, the scope. So um, no longer is it just the, the actual financial institution, it's the actual person um, will be liable. So we, we've definitely seen an uptake in, in, in that report and that blog because it's, it's human curiosity. Yes, that's right. And, and I think all good marketing appeals to our human side. We are humans. Well, we only have one side and it's human. We're not... We're not corporate entities, are we? And we, we, you know, we will only be interested in content that fascinates us or interests us or entertains us in some way. You know, how far would you go in putting a very sort of human or emotive edge on B2B content? Do you think there's a line that you sort of stop short of there? Um, I think it, it really does depend. Um, you know, our company is, is, you know, dealing with a very serious massive issue globally um you know financial crime we wouldn't take that lightly um and we wouldn't comment on it lightly 
um, there's a severity to that, um, which we make sure that we 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 have to have the the that kind of tone when we're going to market. So depending now, I was work, I, I worked for a long time in the construction industry, which was international construction for clean rooms. You could put a bit of humor behind that. Um, it's still B2B marketing, um, but, you know, taking pictures of the guys on sites or wellness day or, you know, there's a way to be humorous within that industry, you know, still taking consideration health and safety and things like that. But it really depends on the industry that you're actually involved in. Yeah, I get that. Um, I do understand that. I mean, that that's one thing I, I really like about Monzo. I mean, of course, they're B2C. So this this is totally incomparable to what you do, really. Um, but I like how they broke the rules of how a bank should sound, and they are quite, fr- quite frivolous sometimes, quite cheeky, quite humorous. Which a bank, you know, well, I think they take their marketing from Ryanair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, or maybe Patty Powers. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean their their end goal is you know um, Generation X, Generation Y, Z. But it feels like a bank run by people like me, and so you know. I suppose the, the, the textbook idea was you must never sound like you're not taking this stuff seriously. This is people's money. This is people's life savings. You have to sound like you're taking this stuff seriously. And so it's all about trust. What Monzo realized, I think, was that actually if you if you show the audience that you are basically like them and this company is run by, you know, people just like the audience, that there's trust in that too. And even there's a, a really good... Um wealth investment advisor, um, April Rudden on LinkedIn. Um, and I would follow her and she was even talking about people think today, you know, that, that, that the wealth aspect for investment banking is actually, you know, your older generation and it's actually not, it's the younger generation. And that makes sure that you're targeting your marketing accordingly. Um, that it's not actually generation, the younger generation that is using technology in order to do their investments, People who are wealthy actually have the savvy to use technology and do use technology. So ensure that you are addressing your audience appropriately and you've done your research appropriately, which I think is is fundamental. We automatically classify people into certain personas um, based on what we think. However, you've got to look at the basic evidence within the industry and use that in your marketeering. In your opinion, what are the key drivers of success in B2B in 2021 that our listeners should put first, that should re- they should really prioritize thinking about in terms of improving their B2B marketing? I think number one is understanding your audience. And you understand your audience by talking to your sales teams, by talking to your customer success teams, by looking at RFPs. What are the clients saying back within the industry? Don't assume that you know but try and get your information through those various channels. I think from coming from a traditional marketeer um, where I started was understanding the power of word, how to phrase words, how to use action verbs, not to use is. Those kind of simple techniques should be fundamental to anybody starting out in the industry. You have to know how to write whether that be know how to write socially or know how to write a white paper. It's really, really important. I think marketeers nowadays have to wear many hats. We have to be socially media aware. We have to be, you know, lead gen aware. 
We have to be able to look at, um, you know, using Photoshop. There's many different technologies that you have to know in B2B marketing. So being open to disseminate information really readily is, is I think, paramount in this industry. Um, and loving what you do, um, being with a team that, you know, excites you, that you can fall back on. Um, I think that's really key to kind of any, I think good marketeers, you know, because you can tell by what the output is. Um, and I think that's really key as well. So whether B2B or B2C, it's clear that good, relevant marketing starts with understanding your audience and what makes them tick. Well, next up, let's hear from Dominic, who I chatted to about the inherent challenges of B2B marketing and how to overcome them. What are the specific challenges for you with B2B marketing, do you think? Um, as you probably you know, could guess before, when I talked about who are dental professionals, so already there we have quite a big variety of, of job descriptions or you know, specialties. And so the diversity is definitely one of the biggest challenges, I would say. Um, because nowadays, you know, people always talk about customer journeys if you, you know, go into communication or digital marketing. And what we figured, I mean, there is no such thing as the customer journey that, you know, sort of fits through all the specialties that we have to serve and GPs, oral maxillofacial surgeons, they're all, they all have different needs. They all have different ways of, of researching, buying, um, rebuying, etc. So really also the size of the practice is definitely something to consider. Um, so really we have to think thoroughly in those personas and, and map out the journeys for specific campaigns that we're doing. Also journeys when it comes more to, you know, um, sort of the, the, the entire life cycle of, you know, being something like a, a newsletter subscription to becoming maybe a light registration on a e-learning platform to really becoming a customer that is, you know, entered in CRM that has a, a login with our e-shop, etc. Um, also there, I think we really have to think through um, different kind of user journeys, customer journeys for the different um, segments. And this, I think, is really just a challenge because naturally you tend to try to unify as much as possible um, just to reduce complexity, but that's not never really um, living up to the expectations that the customers may have. And therefore, I think it's always this you know balance between going too deep, too narrow, um, but also, you know, obviously we cannot spend endless amount of time just, you know, serving every single segment of one um so therefore that's one of the biggest challenges so it's quite fractured it's quite uh, segmented the way that you see it so but do those different segments see a lot of the same content how tailored is it to your different personas i think dental professionals they're actually a highly engaged audience um i would probably say other healthcare professionals are likewise in, in specific areas um they really love to consume rich content that is adding value to their you know decision making processes to their professional life uh, they like scientific educational um, clinical cases clinical content um, in a way that is easily consumable um, so I mean uh, if you talk or target more academic and probably hospital based um, um, dental professionals then you know they they're used to reading, uh, scientific and, and peer-reviewed journals, etc., um, the latest research. But if you're talking to general practitioners and, and you know other healthcare or dental professionals, I think they really like to um, have condensed information uh, that 
where the, the practical use of such a scientific you know, finding or whatever is being explored, um, ideally also from peer to peer. Um, and I wouldn't say that we you know, really um, create content for, for segments of one, but obviously we're trying. Uh, but this is, again, a constant struggle between the resources we have available, the aspirations that we have and what the customer actually would need and what we can finally also deliver. But yeah, you need to have a benchmark or an aspiration to jump as high as possible. And uh, otherwise, you don't jump high enough. Yeah. The, the way that brands um, serve us, you know, B2C brand servers, that's changed the B2B customers' expectations, right? Absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> the shift is not new. I mean, it started latest, if not much earlier, but in 2008 when, you know, famous Steve Jobs presented his, his iPhone. Um, you know, ever since, you know, the, the, also the B2B buyer or especially the B2B buyer had all the power in his hands to make the research, to talk to peers. Um, and there is a lot of, you know, research and studies out there that say in a B2B decision-making journey, it's actually 60 to 80% of that journey is being made by a B2B buyer without ever getting in contact with a sales or any representative of the company he's intending to buy from. Um, which means B2B companies are missing out the first 60 to 80% of that journey uh, and are trying to get into that game. But um, so the, the the customer or the B2B buyer is, is empowered by technology and he has higher expectations than ever. Um, again, by, you know, having also a private life where he sees what uh, digitally is, is possible and how easy it is to make, you know, um, uh, a contract with, with Uber to, to ride on a, on a taxi. Um, and this experience and expectations are also reflected on the, on the B2B buyer. And they expect us, you know, through um, their digital touch points that they have with or without our company throughout getting in contact with either an inside sales or sales rep or, you know, somebody in a, in a, in a course that he later may book that the experience is always, you know, consistent, seamless, and that whomever he's talking to has an idea of where he stands in his decision-making uh, process and what past touch point he's had. And making this sort of, you know, work internally that everybody understands and has the, the, the full 360 view of the customer. I think this is something that we are struggling with and that a lot of other B2B companies probably also struggling with, yeah. Talk to me about that. What 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 is this? Because I hear a lot about this challenge of having the, the 360-degree view of the customer. Just tell me in plain layman's terms what that means and why it's a challenge. Probably the simplest start with an example. Um, it's probably not the um, the self. Well, you can also say like the customer or the uh, the B2B customer is on a journey to, you know, he, he probably reads an interesting article somewhere about that new dental implant that um, Strauman has brought on the market. He starts his own research Googling around, um, he probably ends up at one of our um, YouTube, um, you know, articles where we uh, publish clinical cases. Um, so the practical use of our implants. He may subscribe as a as a newsletter um, subscriber. He gets another email a month later. Uh, there is another offer to download a free ebook with you know additional I don't know 10, 15 clinical cases. He leaves his email address and some more details. Um, at some point we in marketing, we say, okay, this is, you know, there, there's a lead 
that is heating up um, based on his engagement with us, then we will also try to gather additional information about him. Um, like, uh, you know, how long has he been in practice? What's his educational status? Um, what's the city he lives in? Is it, you know, metropolitan area? Is it a rural area? Um, we may investigate how many implants he places per year and all this information, um, having, you know, more insights or profile data of, of the customer will help us to, um, qualify and score the lead. Um, and at some point we will hand that lead over to, to a sales rep or an inside salesperson. And that usually is where in our world, um, the, traceability uh, when it comes from a data perspective comes to an end because then we rely on a human being that is then picking up the conversation with the lead um, you know either physically on the phone and then still having that data in our systems because you need to manually um, add it what the conversation has been about um, uh, when did he get in contact is he moving on in the opportunity management so the pipeline sort of is he moving stages ahead um, is he finally also buying and having this full view? I think this is where, you know, systems don't do the job itself. There's obviously a lot of automation tools out there and probably the, the most sophisticated technology does a lot of the manual work for, for, the, for the people. But in the end, really capturing all these data points and bringing them together in systems that talk to each other. I think that is sort of the, the, the holy grail of B2B marketing. That sounds great, but that does also sound hard because, like you say, that's that's not one system. There's humans involved. Um, so just just to just to pause on that point for a minute, do you you know you have CRM software? Is there is there some is there one tool that does it all, um, or do you have to tie different tools together there? <laughs> yeah, if we wish there was one tool, probably. Um, <laughs> companies selling these tools would probably say that, you know, there is one tool that, that does it all. In my experience so far, there hasn't been this one holy grail tool. Can you entertain in B2B, do you think? We definitely believe so in the end. Um, and this is, again, an overstretched term, but it's, there is no such thing as B2B, but it's only business to humans. Um, so every time the recipient is a human being, and um, obviously, yes, you need to emotionalize the communication as well. And we usually leave about 20% room for really you know, the emotional, the storytelling um, and more you know, fun uh, part, whereas we usually say 80% needs to be somehow value-adding and, and more business-related. Do, do you think there are any brands out there that are doing this particularly well, in your view? A brand that I like to follow, um, it's probably not somebody selling something, but it's the World Economic Forum, the WEF, um, they really are upping the game and what it means to deliver um, value-adding, crisp, snackable content to me every day um, about, you know, uh, world issues, uh, megatrends that are relevant. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, that's, that's a good shout. I follow them as well. And uh, I think you're right. Crisp was a good, good way of putting it. Crisp, short content that just it's well distilled. For the benefit of our listeners, what advice would you give to someone who's just got a new job and it's their first job in B2B marketing, what would you tell that person? Book a course with the Digital Marketing Institute and get certified, of course. <laughs> That's <laughs> perfect. Other than that, I think it's all about constant playing and learning. 
try things, read a lot, um, just, you know, read, read, read. I can only recommend to always <laughs> subscribe to all possible newsletters, uh, download ebooks, white papers, because it, it never, you know, stops. Obviously, there is core things that never change in, in marketing. So there's always, you know, uh, understanding your customer and, and living up to his expectations. But other than that, you know, technology, processes, um, best practices, you constantly need to keep yourself up to date. Otherwise, you are going to make yourself redundant. Indeed, indeed. Lastly, what, what sort of shifts and trends do you, are you seeing in B2B marketing today? What's on the horizon? Well, I, I don't know so much on the horizon, but, you know, um, I think B2C, uh, again, Uber, Amazon, you know, we've always talked about customer centricity. I think now B2B companies are starting to understand what it means to, to you know, live up to that customer um, centricity expectations that the, the today's B2B customer has. Um, and this triggers a lot of, you know, internal um, organizational changes that, you know, now it's not, you know, the CEO or just the, the shareholder that is, you know, uh, the, the key or the king. Now it's really all about customer and, and managing. I think customer experience is definitely one of the, of the new era. So it's not just enough about sales and marketing KPIs of saying, you know, we've put through so many MQLs, SQLs, and they've bought so many new products. But it's actually about also measuring CSAT, so customer satisfaction scores, customer um, effort scores. So how much effort did the customer put in in order to make business with us? us? It's also about net promoter score. So measuring the loyalty of your existing customers at as many touch points as possible. I think this is definitely one of the things, um, as I mentioned before, because of that, um, you need to constantly align internally sales marketing you know some industries it's even becoming one department they call it revenue um, um, uh, revenue um, operations or again demand generation and and other than that i think a lot of b2b companies are starting to enter the direct to consumer business model meaning they skip sort of the the, the, the reseller uh, and directly go to the consumer and what i've recently sort of got to know from, from China, it's always a good thing to look uh, into China, how they are evolving the digital game, is this um, consumer to manufacturer um, kind of you know, development. So there, the consumers, and it goes back to customer centricity, consumers are gathering um, in so-called group buying. I think there is a, it's called Ping Duo Duo in China, a platform like this. So actually the consumers gather together and say, I want, or we are a group of 1,000 people. We want this shoe in blue. You don't manufacture it yet. And they actually go back to the manufacturer and make them produce the blue shoe. And again, they skip the retailer that usually would say, okay, based on our market research and because we have been uh, tracking people in our store, we've identified they might light blue shoe, but actually they want the dark blue shoe, right? And now consumers are telling the manufacturers directly what they Want to happen? I think this is sort of a, a reverse engineered um, thing that we are going to see more and more. Yeah. Again, understanding our audience, being customer centric, that's the running theme here. After all, in B2B, we're still marketing to people. We're using formats like social posts, articles, videos, just like in B2C. It's just about understanding what people want in the context of their relationship with us and then delivering that at high quality. 
Well, finally, let's hear from Lee Odden. Uh, this episode was about B2B influencer marketing. And here we've picked out some highlights of what he had to say about that, which was very interesting, from choosing the right influencers to work with, measuring influence, measuring campaigns, becoming influential in a B2B space, influencer communities, and more. So let's hear what Lee has to say. Surely everybody wants the most famous people on the planet sharing their brand and their products. How do we find the right kind of breed of influencer for our brand? That's a great question. Yeah. One of the most important things when you're architecting an influencer content program is to identify, obviously, the, the relevant types of content mapped to the, its purpose in the customer journey, meaning that you know we're not going to generate a lot of new leads if all we're doing is publishing top of funnel content, right? So most content marketing programs do have uh, some sort of architecture that uh, connects the type of content with an outcome. So the same goes with matching influencers. So if I have broad-based awareness-oriented content, I'm going to work with what we call brand individuals. Like the, the 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 top of funnel content is really, you know, something that's meant to help people understand the nature of a problem and the nature of its solutions just so they're, you know, they're just beginning their journey. So to get attention to that, we're going to work with the most famous of influencers in the industry. Um, we don't expect anybody to buy from that. We simply are trying to get them into the beginning of that conversation. But as we move through the customer journey and the buyer is starting to do more research and collect more data, find more information about solutions, now we want to bring influencers that are closer to being practitioners in specific craft that's relevant to the solution. Uh, a lot of times, these can be people in the community. Um, they're not as big and popular, but they do have very high engagement rates. And we can prove that out with our influencer marketing tools and software. They're driving a lot of conversations. They're niche influencers. Um, and sometimes they might even be uh, employees of the brand. As we get towards the end of that buying journey, now, of course, you know um, we want to work with customers if possible. Uh, sometimes people pick case studies in B2B marketing based on other factors besides who's most influential of our brand uh, customers or individuals at those brands that could speak to the effectiveness of our solution. So um, it's a mix and influencers um, play different roles uh, in the same way that content plays different roles as marketers guide buyers through that whole sales process or guides them from that awareness, you know, consideration and purchase sort of journey. The core blocking and tackling metrics of any influencer software that most people use to collect the data are reach, relevance, and resonance. So reach of, as you said, you know, it's network size. Um, relevance is the topical relevance, uh, in other words, the alignment of what it is that the influencer publishes to the topic you want to be influential about and resonance is uh, the degree to which that topic generates outcomes or interactions or engagement amongst the first and second level audience that that influencer has following them. And this is of course all, you know, based on public social data um, that we arrive at these three key metrics. There's more than that actually, but um, fundamentally those are criteria for picking any influencer 
uh, imagine a, a yeah. stereo system that has an equalizer, you know, old fashioned stereo. <laughs> and we have these levers that can we go. Yeah. The, those metrics we can move up and down according to the characteristics that we're looking for. How do we become an influencer? So we're essentially doing <laughs> the influencing ourselves. I mean, everyone asks me this as well when I run these kind of sessions. But what, what do you say when people ask you that? Well, I think the first thing is you've got to stand for something. Uh, what is it that you want to be influential about? And what is your unique point of view? And once you arrive at that, you've got to publish. Uh, you've got to create content that, articul- that creates value for people around that topic you want to be influential around about. Mm-hmm. And you know, you've got to be very intentional about attracting uh, an audience, um, nurturing your audience, nurturing your community around that topic that you want to be influential about. So um, in being influential in B2B is different in that if I'm a, you know, if I just am uh, good at creating videos, I can just decide I'm an influencer about whatever topic I'm really good at creating videos around from a B2C perspective, right? I don't necessarily, you know, I can be, um, what's that fellow who walks up to folks in exotic cars and says, what do you do for a living? You know, what does that guy know about cars? He doesn't have to know anything about cars. He's just at the right place at the right time. And now he's got, you know, millions of uh, TikTok followers on TikTok. And he's, you know, he quit his finance job and now he's just doing that and making a living, right? So in B2B, you actually have to have domain expertise. You should have, you know, um, be able to back up the point of view that you have that you want to be influential about. So if you want to be an influencer, stand for something. Isn't it? Because it's so, in general, you are working at a more niche level. You're not working on broad consumer goods. You're working in domains that require, yeah, like deep expertise, like finance or software or technology, something like that. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. and to sort of link that to another question that's come through from Mohammed Siddiqui. Thanks for your question, Mohammed. Um, he says, firstly, thanks for the presentation. And um, he said, what's your opinion on community building in B2B? Because it's so important in B2C, but it it does feel like a bit more of a challenge, doesn't it, in B2B, like generating a kind of real thriving community? Well, build, building a community at large obviously makes sense. Uh, you've got more than, you know, you've got a lot of people that have uh, similarities in the challenges they're trying to solve. And if you can create a community where you can connect people with each other and be a resource with each other uh, at the same time as you being from the brand, uh, making resources available to that community, this is something that can strengthen relationships. It can warm the market. Um, But in the context of influence, creating an influencer community is also very, very important. As I mentioned, LinkedIn has developed a community of you know 75 to 100 sales and marketing experts over time. It didn't just happen overnight. These people didn't just say, yeah, sure, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Um, we had to create a lot of micro interactions that led up to increasingly um, more substantial asks and commitments and just gener- generally you know, creating relationships with these people. And as a result of that, you know, uh, these folks are organically advocating for the brand. They are yeah. organically uh, standing up for the brand also um, when people ask questions or make statements and that sort of thing. So building a community, is it, it might be harder in B2B in a sense that you're dealing with more specific topics and a, lar- a smaller number of people, but they're still people. 
and they still have concerns and issues and cares and goals and challenges. And if you can connect those people with each other in the context of your brand, you can create something really special. Yeah, and that's a really important distinction to make, actually, and and something. Uh, uh, yeah, people, I think people need to really think about, and we don't skip over. Is this um, what LinkedIn did? So it wasn't a community in the sense that it was like a few thousand followers on a platform, which isn't really a community. But it also wasn't a community in the way a Facebook group might be or something like that. This is like a community, like a VIP super user type group of influential people who um, they gain something by being part of like this kind of inner circle. And and, uh, presumably it's a great networking thing for them. They gain a bit of um, insider knowledge into what's going on at LinkedIn. So they maybe gain, you know, something of an, an edge there, maybe early access to stuff. Who knows? Um, so they gain something from it from from just by being part of it. And like you say, over time, it, it grows in value for them. And so they reciprocally um, feel like they, they want to, yeah, advocate for the brand and, and uh, sometimes even yeah, defend the brand and stand up for the brand in yep. the future. And, and, you know, savvy marketers um, that do develop communities are using, you know, they're, they're not just feeling warm and fuzzy about this. They're, they're mm. measuring, they're measuring share of voice uh, amongst that community of influencers for mentions of the brand, for example, or the brand in uh, sentiment. So maybe our starting point is that, you know, maybe we only have 10 mentions, you know, a week from this community of a hundred people. But after our relationship building activities and our activations, now the people that those in the industry trust the most around this topic, now they're mentioning our brand in context a hundred times a week, right? So there's, it's, it's very important that, that we think about these clever ways of, you know, marshalling resources, but also that we're measuring them um, in a way that, you know, illustrates brand impact. We've actually developed some very robust content repurposing approaches um, that can make it super efficient for brands to continue to maintain, you know, uh, signals, uh, create signals of of connection with their influencer community, meaning that it's a very efficient way to give influencers visibility, drive attention to the brand. Um, you know, a lot of people think of, oh, I've got to run an always on program. Now I've got to be all, you know, I've, I've got to add five more headcount or something. How am I going to possibly afford that? You, you don't have to, you don't have to. Um, there are some efficient ways to do that. Yes. What you mean, you mean through tools and agencies? So, for example, uh, let's say an influencer activation is, uh, let's say we're going to create an ebook and then a short form video, blog post, you know, sort of like a cluster of content types. But we approach that by interviewing each influencer. We ask each influencer like 10 questions. And we take the answers to those questions and then we create the ebook. The, we do a video yeah. interview real quick and um, we do promos, social content, blog posts, newsletter, whatever. Then we atomize the answers that are 10 influencers who answered 10 questions each into quotes. And um, we repurpose and we cluster their answers together is new content types. And we spread this out over four or five months, six months after the original content assets published. That's one thing you can do um, in terms of repurposing influencer content and of course, when you do that, you reach out to them and let them know, hey, we just want to let you know, thanks for the ebook. You know, last week, we've got some other things planned for you. You don't have to do anything, 
Yeah. We're going to let you know when this other stuff publishes. They appreciate that. It gives them exposure. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. And, and I love that you picked up on that as well. Um, you talked about how influencers can be your, they can be how you outsource creative production, right? They can how you actually get stuff made. And that is a, a really good point and something that, yeah, definitely want people to think about and go away thinking about because absolutely, um, influencer marketing, I'd hate people to think that it's, oh, you, you know, you just create stuff and then you just pay people to republish it on their Instagram and their Twitter. I mean, that's just not what it's about. It's You'll get influencers so much more invested if they've actually played a role in creating it or they've created content. And like you say, you can then be smart about how you repurpose that over time and uh it increases kind of life cycle um so yeah that's um important so i thought one of the most interesting slides as well that you pulled up was where you looked at the reason that people do influencer marketing and driving sales seem to be quite far down that list um so which which I suppose I would expect, but maybe a lot of people don't intuitively think because they think, well, surely that's why we're doing it, right? Um, so talk me through how we kind of set expectations or how you typically set expectations of a an influencer campaign. Like what, what do you advise clients to expect and want out of that activity? Well, I think we all realize that um, putting a piece of sales literature in front of a prospect does not compel them to buy a million dollar software package with a million dollar implementation consulting fee. It, it, it's ridiculous. So there's a lot of education that occurs. Sales cycles that take six, 12 months, 18 months, depending on the size of purchase. Um, this is a lot of content that is necessary in order to educate that buyer. So, um, you know, the, the approach that you might take um, has to be in concert with, you know, the, um, the, the, the outcomes that you're after and the expectations that you set have to do with the marketing strategy that you're following. So in other words, there's a lot of companies that have brand expectations when they work with influencers. Why is that? Because when you're working with people who are really well-known and well-trusted, um, you can create very quick brand affinity between your brand and that topic you want to be known for if you work with those people who are already well-known about that topic. It's like going to a party and everyone says, hey, everyone, meet Will. He's funny. He's smart. He's tech savvy. He's amazing. You've got to talk to him. And that's setting an expectation for what people will experience when they're with you, right? And if that host is really well-known and respected, bam, you're instantly life of the party guy, if, if that's what you want to be, right? Um, <laughs> I so, do. Well, I thought your SAP example was good. I thought, and I think actually for anybody thinking about how to do this, I think podcasts are a great way in because I, I think Shopify do a very similar thing to uh, what it sounds like SAP do. You know, they have their own experts. They bring experts from outside. Everybody wins because um people like to be exposed on the podcast people get a lot out of being on the podcast everyone gets a lot out of listening to it because it's based on this specific expertise and hey if you're not into e-commerce it's very boring podcast but they don't care about that if you are you'll love it and um it's a great way to just go very deep in your niche and sort of uh develop relationships and also you find once people have been on your podcast they're pretty warm to you know you, you've had an email conversation with you you know, um, with you. So 
he kind of warmed up a bit of a relationship there. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, here's the thing about podcasts. The podcast example I shared was particularly creative. If people go and listen to it, if they look for a tech unknown SAP uh, podcast, they'll find that the production is stands out in terms of B2B podcast. Mm-hmm. And this is something that isn't just good for the customer who's going to consume the podcast content, but it's a best practice when it comes to influencer collaboration on content to inspire the influencers to want to help make it successful. In other words, it's really competitive right now. It's getting more and more competitive for the best influencers. If you ask, even if you're from a well-known brand, if you invite an influencer to collaborate on content and the content itself is just your standard looking white paper research report, two-dimensional, blah, 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 black and white kind of thing, eh, what is that really going to do for them, right? Who's going to look at that? Are you, How many millions in ad spend are you going to put behind that to amplify it maybe before they say yes? Or you can share with them examples of interactive content, immersive content, dynamic content, things that are really going to make that influencer look and sound great. And this is directly correlated with the degree to which they share, right? If you make them look good, it, it's something, it is like you said before, it's an everybody wins situation. It's good for the end consumer of the content because it's more interesting to consume. Uh, it's certainly it represents a brand well, and it's something that the influencer is proud to be a part of. So that's it for this episode. We hope that was useful. You can, of course, go and listen to the full episodes that we took those excerpts from by scrolling back through our podcast feed. As always, thanks so much for listening. And if you like what we're doing here, the best way to support our podcast is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, if you use that, and share your favorite episodes with friends and colleagues. Thanks again and see you soon.